Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. The early church was so moved and pushed forward by this idea of Jesus's resurrection that it literally not only altered the course of their lives, it changed the course of the entirety of human history. Whether you would call yourself a, a Christian, a believer in Jesus or not, it is inarguable that the world is fundamentally different based on the events that we celebrate that happened some 2,000 years ago today. The, the central point that I'd like for us to talk about today is simply the point of resurrection. The idea that Jesus came, that he died, and that he was raised again it was so foundational, so pivotal to the early church that they staked their entire belief, all of the teachings that they pass on to us, on the fact, on the reality that the resurrection was real that it was not made up, that it was not fabricated, that it truly happened, that they give evidence to that and that it changed their lives in the course of the world today. Let me just give you a small example of that. Pastor Greg already walked us through an ancient greeting where the whole church, not only at Easter time, but really any time when they would give a greeting, they would give testimony, they would give honor, they would give reflection to this idea of a risen Savior. So they would greet each other and they would say, He is risen. And they would respond with, Well, oh, you guys are so much more awake than 9 a.m. I appreciate that. I don't have to explain things at this hour, right? But that was so foundational that they weren't just greeting each other. They were actually making a theological statement, a statement about their own lives, a, a statement of belief about who they were and who they believed this God, this Jesus to be. And so I want to talk about how the resurrection impacted them and then a little bit about how it impacts us today and what it means for our future. Because I think if we're honest, the question might be fair to ask this morning, why does the resurrection matter? Why does the resurrection matter? Not only in our own understandings, obviously, if we're Christians, if you're in church, if this is part of your schedule, the answer to that question might be important for you. But broader than that, why does the resurrection matter in the 21st century, right? In the time past miracles, quote unquote, in the time of rationality and science where things can be explained. I mean, can you even conceive or think of a story of somebody who has died, who has passed away, and who has come back? to life. Outside of like a hospital, right, or a surgery, somebody perhaps dying for moments or seconds or even up to minutes on a hospital bed, but really this idea is very, very foreign to us. It's very, very ancient. It's really, really far removed. Why does belief in the resurrection, why does belief that Jesus died, was buried, and raised again impact not only our lives as followers, but really the entire world? Maybe I could ask the question a little bit better this morning. What would it take for you to believe that someone that you had witnessed, that you had seen dying, was actually alive? Take a moment and just conceptually think about that. Somebody that you'd seen, that you'd witnessed, that you were at the funeral, somebody that you knew who had died, what would it take to convince you that such a person would be alive and well walking around again? 
You might find similar solace in the people of the New Testament. You might be like Thomas and say, well, I'd I'd have to physically touch them. I'd have to put my hands through the scars. I'd have to recognize that they were really here, not some imaginative thing, not some hologram, not some projection. I'd have to see and feel and touch them to know that they're real. I'd have to see them with my own eyes, right? Your experience is enough, but if I'm going to believe, then I'm going to have to see it with my own eyes. I'm going to have to have the experience myself. I think that's rational. I think that's true for any of us today. I think it's true for the people in the biblical narrative as well. But I think that more so than the stories that we read about, this story can be difficult for us to connect with simply because of the time factor. Right? We're recognizing and celebrating an event that actually happened 2,000 years ago. And the person and nature of Jesus is far removed. It would be like if you were talking on the phone with your mom, if you have the privilege of still visiting with her or some other close family relative, and they tell you about a distant relative, your great, 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 twice removed Uncle Jerry, right, who happens to live in Chicago. Right? Like he's just way out there. You haven't seen him since you were like 12 years old don't know what's going on with his life. And as you get talking to your mom, you get caught up on the story. Oh, well, Uncle Jerry's actually in the hospital. He's not, he's not doing so well. Or he's probably, he's probably going to pass away. And you share stories briefly about that one family reunion, how he ruined the potato salad, and you had a laugh about it. And you were sad because Uncle Jerry looked like he was going to be passing away. But again, he lives in Chicago. You haven't seen him for 20, 30 years. He's unrecognizable to you. And so when you talk to your mom the next week or the next day or the next time that you're privileged to talk to her, the good news is, hey, good news, great, 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 Uncle Jerry twice removed is he's still alive. He pulled out of it. Actually, he, he died on the surgery table, but the good news is that the doctors were able to revive him and he's healthy and doing well. Your response might be, great right? That's, that's good news. I'm happy to hear that he pulled through. But again, the, the distance and the intimacy in that relationship kind of leaves it just at a platitude. It's just okay. It's just good. It's happy, but it's not close. Now, contrast that story with if you've ever had the terrible privilege or honor of walking with someone through their last time here on earth. If you've ever been in the hospital room as somebody answers the questions of what happens next and what are my odds, if you've ever watched the fearful tears form in their eyes as they think about their time here and what's to come, maybe you've held their hand, maybe you felt them go cold, maybe you were at the funeral and you watched them be buried. That kind of closeness in a relationship changes the story. While a phone call could change your opinion about your great-great-great-uncle Jerry, somebody that close to you, a spouse, a family member, a friend, somebody that you walked alongside, the, the set of criteria that it would take to convince you that that person was in fact not dead but alive is radically different. This is why the resurrection matters, because what it meant to the disciples of Jesus, to those closest to him, is that they had walked with Jesus up through the end. They had been there all throughout the courses of the day. They'd lived with him for literally three years, right? They spent night and day, every single meal, every waking moment with each other, right? There's no vacation package as a disciple, I don't know if you're aware of that, right? The medical benefits aren't great either. Life insurance, though, 
They're a pretty sweet deal. Glad you guys got that one. Early service didn't. But here's the point. If you've been with people daily for three years, when you go through their passing and you walk through that with them, there's a proximity of the relationship. There's no missing what's going on. There's a closeness, a kinship, an affection that is happening. And we just walked through on Good Friday with the disciples, the apostles, those closest to him as they watched what Jesus endured. We had a Good Friday service here where we took some time to step into the shoes of those disciples again. We did it for an evening, but this was their life as we kind of got to witness and see all that Jesus endured. And so again, the question remains that if you were there, if you saw him on the cross, if you witnessed him being tortured and tormented, if you saw the stone roll in front of the grave, if you felt his cold body, what would it take for you to believe that he was not in fact dead but he was alive. It would take an astounding amount of evidence, whether we're in the 21st century or the first century, but this is the reason why the story of resurrection is so foundational, so prominent, so important, not only to history, the history of the world, not only to our faith, but also to the future in which God calls us to. Because the apostles, the disciples, knew for a fact that Jesus was dead. There was no question in their minds on Friday or Saturday or even Sunday morning. There was no conception. There was no idea. They had no other thought other than the recognition that all of their hard work, all of the things that they believed in, that this Messiah, this rabbi, this king came, and now he's dead and it's over. And so on Sunday morning, this morning that we celebrate, the day after Passover in the Jewish calendar, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. She's going to offer the last rites. There's no hope in her journey. There's only mourning and consoling and deep, deep affliction of soul. And so she goes to the tomb with the intention of continuing the mourning process. And perhaps that helps us experience the shock that she experiences. We're going to pick up our story in John chapter 19, starting at verse 1. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. She saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. He bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came behind him and he went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. I hope that you can experience the shock there that they're going through. 
Again, they knew for a fact that Jesus was dead. They hadn't connected it with the Scriptures as they testify to themselves there. They're going and hoping that something changes, that something is different, but their hope isn't there. When they see the missing body, their accusation is very, very natural. Somebody clearly must have stolen his body. They must have taken it and put it somewhere. This must be a grave robber. Where have they put the body of Jesus? No conception of resurrection whatsoever. As a matter of fact, the, the word for looked in verse 5, there isn't the word for to see like with your eyes. It's actually the word for to theorize. It's like John, that's the other disciple who's unnamed here. It's like he's, he's trying to put together the puzzle. Like, why would the stone be rolled away? Well, clearly somebody stole the body. But if somebody stole the body, then why is the cloth still in its place? Why is the linen still there? This looks like somebody has taken care of the linen, not just strewn it about in a pile. If this were a grave robbery, something different would have occurred. And so as he looks in, he's trying to think and process what could possibly be happening. Where could the body of Jesus be? Let's continue reading now verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, why are you crying? Listen to her answer. They have taken my Lord away. Somebody has done this. She said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't hold on to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Notice the change in her countenance. Please tell me if you've moved him. I'll go and get him. I won't be mad. Just tell me where the body is. She's so convinced of Jesus' death that she doesn't even recognize him standing behind her. She thinks him a stranger. And in one moment, in one word, Jesus invites her into that, and all of a sudden her world is turned upside down. In other Gospels, Matthew records that the angels give the proclamation that was so celebrated that he is not here, he is risen, he's resurrected, he has come back again. Notice that Jesus' first instructions, a lot of people associate that with the Great Commission, go therefore into all the nations, but his first instructions are to instruct a woman to go and tell the men the gospel, the finished gospel, right? Up until this point, everybody knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but the gospel was not finished until Jesus was dead and then resurrected again. The first herald, the first proclaimer of the gospel is Mary Magdalene. And then the story goes on that the key piece this morning is that the resurrection is the fundamental piece of New Testament Christianity. This experience, this story, this firsthand account of seeing the resurrected Christ is what the rest of our faith is built on. It was an idea that was so foreign and so outlandish that you'd be hard-pressed to design such a story. 
and the majority of the New Testament focuses not on the words of Jesus as you and I focus our time with in the Gospels. The New Testament focuses on the resurrected Messiah and what that means for us. The Gospel was rooted in the reality of the resurrection. And so to finish that story, I'd invite you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is going to give us a little bit of lesson about the implications of the resurrection that I'd like to share with you today. We'll start at verse 3. This is Paul writing again to the early church, reminding them of his teachings. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. Let's just stop there. He says, This is the most important thing. This is the first thing. This is Christianity 101. This is faith 101. You've got to start here. This is the gospel that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to those same scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the message that Paul says. If you get nothing else, if there's nothing else going on, this is the foundational piece of the gospel. How do we know that this is true? Paul's going to tell us. And that once he was resurrected, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, his apostles and disciples. Then after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. What's Paul saying here? Paul's saying, how do we know that the resurrection happened? Well, because you can talk to them, right? You can go talk to Peter. He's going to be at the Council of Jerusalem next month. Go and ask him about it. You can talk to the apostles. They're scattered around here somewhere doing various works. You can ask any one of them whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead, and they'll all give you the same story. He says, go and ask any of the 500 brothers and sisters that he appeared to at the same time. They'll give you the same story. And oh, by the way, you remember me who came and spent all that time with you teaching you? I can also testify to the resurrected Savior, to Jesus being alive. The point of this entire section of Scripture is to underline the reality of the resurrection who, by those people who experienced it because they were so transformed by it that every single one of them lived differently. It wasn't a metaphor. It wasn't an elaborate lie. They didn't dream it up or invent it. They saw it. They witnessed Jesus alive, which is great and is important for us to understand historically. What does that mean for you and I? What does that mean for us? The, the quote that I love about this story about the resurrection comes from Chuck Colson. He uses a, a story that's probably familiar to some of us in this room. It may be a stretch, but uh, here's what he says. He says, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. Actually, there were more like 500, but we'll give him 12. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. The Watergate scandal embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So here's what the resurrection means to us. I don't think it's a stretch for many of us to believe that Jesus died, to believe that he died in a prominent fashion, to believe that he died intentionally. That's very, very natural. Everybody who's ever lived up until this point in history has died. It's a natural math equation. One plus one equals two. It takes a very different kind of faith to believe in a resurrected Savior. 
To believe that Jesus died and was buried and then was raised again, that ratchets our faith into a different gear. That's not natural. That's supernatural. That puts us in a different category and in a different frame of mind. But the resurrection was so prominent to the early church that they built their entire faith around it. And similarly so, we have to do the same. As Christians, we are people of the resurrection. The resurrection changed the course of everyone's life who heard about it. Indeed, the entire trajectory of human history that Jesus Christ came and died and was raised, and it extends to us as well. Here's what it means for us today. Paul's going to connect the dots for us. Jump down, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? He's addressing some questions that the Corinthians have. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's what the resurrection means for you and for I today. If Christ isn't raised, then we won't be. And this is a significant problem. See, a lot of us think that heaven is out there somewhere, that we're going to die and go to some mystical different place. The, The teachings of Scripture are more that the kingdom of God is revealed in you through the Holy Spirit working itself out, and that when we die, we actually fall asleep until Jesus creates a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus isn't about taking us out of the world. He's about creating us within the world in a new space. And what Paul says is, if you're banking on Christ not being raised from the dead, then there's no hope for you and for I, and that's a significant problem. Also, he says, if Christ is not raised, then really our faith is useless, which is a pretty strong word. He also says preaching is useless, but you may think that already. So... (laughs) neighbor check, make sure they're awake, slip them a piece of Easter candy, say it's almost over. Uh, But the reality is that he says our faith is useless. He says if Christ isn't raised, then our belief in this hope of a second coming, of a second life, of Jesus doing his work within us, really it's all futile because he said that he would die and be raised again. And if that doesn't happen, then what really are we testifying to? That means that the gospel is not Jesus's victory over death if he did not in fact conquer it. But it gets worse, he says, if Christ isn't raised, then we're all false witnesses. By showing up here and spending this time on Sunday morning, what we're saying is that we believe something fundamentally different than what God put forth. If Christ isn't raised, then what we're doing really is a waste. He says, if Christ is not raised, then our sins are not forgiven. That's a big problem. He says, if Christ is not raised, then we have no hope, no future. There's nothing really to look forward to. Here's the point of all of this. The resurrection was so foundational to the early church that Paul would make this statement that without the resurrection, without Jesus' bodily death and being raised in physical form, then the rest of our faith was just worthless. 
It doesn't matter at all. All the good teachings, all the good sayings, none of it matters without the power of the resurrected Lord and his defeat over death. Because if Jesus hasn't been raised, then there's no hope for us being raised, which means all we've got is our 60, 70, 80 years here on this planet, and then it's over. Paul says that if that's the truth, if if that's the gospel that we subscribe to, then we are to be the most pitied of all people. Happy Easter, everyone. This is the reality. He says, look, the resurrection is so foundational to what we believe. The risen Savior is so essential that the gospel ceases to be the gospel without it. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, there is no good news. And it underscores the entire message of the gospel, which has never been about making bad people behave better. It's never been making bad people good. It's always been taking people who are dead in their sins and trespasses and making them alive in Jesus, making them alive in God. And if Christ is not raised, then we are still dead with no hope for a future or a resurrection. This is the message of Easter, that Jesus was present in God himself, that he died and was buried, but he rose from the dead, overcoming death, paving the way, being the firstborn, as Paul says, of all of us who will eventually be raised in God's kingdom. He takes on the sin of the world and conquers death because of his great love for us. And because he lives, we live. Because he's alive, we have a hope and a future as well. That's where Paul goes with this. So what's to come based on the resurrection? Let's finish this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. He says, listen, I, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has become clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All he's saying there is that, look, eventually all of these bodies that wear out will go away. We'll be raised not perishable as we are now, but imperishable. We are mortal now. Our bodies die. They decay. We'll be raised immortal. And at the very end, death is the last enemy to be conquered. But if Christ is not raised, we have no hope for that future. If death is not, in fact, defeated in Jesus' resurrection, then what hope do we have of being raised and restored in his name? And this is the fundamental truth about Easter, that the resurrection is real, that it happened, and that it matters. And not just for you and for me, but for all of creation and all of the world, as we've talked about. So when the first Christians declared that he is risen, it wasn't just a fact. 
They weren't just throwing facts out to each other. They weren't just fact-checking to see what you believed. It was a battle cry. It was a pushing back of the darkness. It was a proclamation of their belief for a hope and a future and of a new life in Christ. Because if Jesus is alive, then so are we. And if he conquered death for our sake, then we will be conquerors of death as well. If he is risen, then so are we. And so today on Easter, as we celebrate the risen and reigning King, the one true King over all of creation, we call forth to that bright future because, are you ready, church? He is risen. I want to invite the band to come up and give us just a moment for prayer and reflection, and I would just encourage you to fill in the blanks that maybe are up there if you've been following along in your notes. We asked the question, right, if Christ is not raised, then what are the implications? Paul listed out a bunch for us, and I would just challenge you to think through your own personal faith journey. What would it mean for you if Christ were not raised? Not just the theological implications that Paul lays out for us, but what does it actually mean for you and in your faith and in your journey? If Christ is not raised, does that change Monday morning? If Christ is not raised, does that change Sunday morning? If Christ is not raised, what is your hope and your future placed in? Here's the point. The early church was so convinced of the resurrection that it changed everything from their daily greetings with one another to their broader thoughts and concepts and prayers. What does it mean for us that we serve a risen and resurrected Savior, that your life is hidden in Christ? And what were the implications? Were that not true? And then to be grateful that it is. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. To pray alongside of me, Jesus, we want to be people of your resurrection. We want to be people of light and life and hope, and we recognize that none of that happens without you first and foremost. And that while the idea of resurrection, of somebody dying and coming back to life may be hard for our 21st century minds to wrap itself around, the truth is that it actually happened, that it was real. And while we may not be blessed and privileged with seeing it with our physical eyes or speaking to you in our physical bodies, God, we can rest in the promises of those who have. And so, God, as you are the resurrected Savior, would you continue your life-giving work within us, giving us a hope and a future? May we be the people of the resurrection. And as we call forth life, not only in ourselves, but in the people around us, that we would make the earth just as it is in heaven, in your name and by your power. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so thankful for the gift that you gave us in Jesus, not only the forgiveness of our sins, God, but also the resurrection from the dead, that Jesus is our first and foremost example and that we can follow him in that capacity. God, would you push us to be people of the resurrection, not just today, not just Easter, but every day of every week for our entire lives. If you believe as I believe that we serve a risen and resurrected Savior, would you all say it together with me? Amen. 